0: Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm gonna chat about a topic on US history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. peeps welcome back this week's topic is pretty cool and it combines pop culture true crime and of course history today is all about the trial people v. levi weeks the first comprehensively covered murder case in the united states there is a lot of detail in this one so get comfy and grab your coffee peeps let's do this The trial of Levi Weeks, also known as the Manhattan Well Murder Trial, is significant for a few reasons. The trial is the first in the United States to contain a formal written record, as during the trial, court reporter William Coleman transcribed the proceeding utilizing shorthand. Once the trial was over, Coleman provided a copy of this transcription to a printer and sold copies throughout the city. People were fascinated by all the lurid headlines and gobbled up all the information they could. Perhaps Truman Capote was inspired by Mr. Coleman when he wrote In Cold Blood. Now that I've covered why it holds some significance in history, let's dive into the players, who are also historical, and what exactly happened. In 1799, a young woman, Julielma Elma Sands, was living at a Quaker boarding house in New York residing with her cousin, Catherine Ring, in a bustling home located at 208 Greenwich Street. Sands, who was described as a Quaker in training, suffered from mild illnesses and complained of intermittent pain that kept her primarily housebound. Living in the same boarding house was one Levi Weeks. Levi, a carpenter, was smitten with Alma and had spent the summer courting her and her cousin. Levi's brother Ezra, was a successful builder who held a number of city contracts and built estates for some of the most prominent men in New York, including two of the men who would later serve as members of the defense team, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. On December 22, 1799, the day of Elma's disappearance, New York was in full mourning over the news of the death of the nation's first president, George Washington. The city was at a relative standstill but Levi spent the day at his brother's lumberyard preparing an order for eight doors for a wealthy client. Injuring himself early in the day, Levi was forced to return to the boarding house to get bandaged up. Tending to his injuries, Elma sat with Levi in the common area of the boarding house while he rested his leg. Unsatisfied with leaving the day's work unfinished, Levi announced his need to leave and went upstairs to change. As Levi prepared to depart for the evening, "'Elma flitted up to her room to dress for an evening out as well. "'Dressed in a calico gown with white ribbons, "'she was on the hunt for one small accessory, "'a muff to keep her hands warm. Coat in hand, Levi asked for the proprietor of the boarding house, "'Mrs. Ring, to tie his hair, "'and with that he was off into the night, "'returning only briefly while his brother finished entertaining guests. "'At some point in the evening, "'Elma also left the boarding house for whereabouts unknown.' Levi returned home around 10 o'clock and asked Mrs. Ring if Elma was home yet. Receiving confirmation she was not, Levi retired upstairs to sleep. At breakfast the next morning, Elma still had not returned. Initially, this was not a cause for concern due to the household's belief she might have snuck off to be married. However, as the days progressed, so did her family's concern, including her cousin's husband and owner of the boarding house, Elias Ring. If she had eloped, why hadn't she come back by now? Word quickly spread throughout the city that Elma was missing. Her description shared via word of mouth for anyone who may have seen her, dressed in that white gown with a white ribbon in her hair while carrying a decorative muff to shield her hands from the winter cold. On New Year's Day, while milling about near Lisbonard's Meadow, the location of the newly established Manhattan Well Company, the story of Elma's disappearance and the key missing muff, was the topic on everyone's lips. Suddenly, a woman curiously pulled the gentle fabric from her winter clothes, asking innocently if the muff she now held in her possession was the one in question. The next morning on January 2nd, hearing of the potential discovery, Elias and his friend Joseph Watkins marched over to the woman's home to confirm the validity of the rumors and demanded to know the location where the garment was found. The muff they learned, had been discovered by a little boy playing by the well located in Lisbonard's meadow just a week prior, the boy fished out the mitt and brought it home. His father, concerned about the discovery and its implications, had searched the well, but reported finding no body. Elias needed to see for himself. Grabbing a long pole, Elias, Joseph, and a man named Paige marched to the well ready to poke the depths to determine if there was anything floating beneath the surface. Extending the long wood into the murky water, the pole hit a mass. Something was lurking beneath the surface. Fashioning a set of crude grappling hooks and using some rope as a net, the men worked to bring that mass to the surface. Slowly, the heavy, sodden heap of cloth made its way up the stone wall. Finally, at the top of the well. The heavy figure was placed onto the frigid snow. There, the lifeless body splayed, soaked to the bone, her dress torn, feet bare, and a white ribbon still in her hair. Alma Sands was dead. Almost immediately, accusations were leveled against Levi Weeks. As soon as the constable arrived at the scene, onlookers were placing the blame at Levi's feet, unlike what we see on television today. Law enforcement in early America was rather limited and constables were not in charge of investigating crimes. Many acted as security guards who watched docks and property. If someone came to them with a crime, they made an arrest and let the magistrate investigate to determine if the charges had merit. One of the first to blame Levi was fellow border resident and cloth merchant Richard Croucher, who loudly pronounced the courtship between Levi and Elma. As this was a murder. The constable felt he had no choice but to arrest the one man who was on everybody's lips. Despite lacking evidence of guilt, Levi was taken into custody and marched over to the well. His response at seeing the constable appear suddenly at his workshop quote, is it the Manhattan Well she was found in? End quote. An inquest into the cause of Elma's death was held on January 3rd and was run by two physicians, Dr. McIntosh and Dr. Prince. Unlike today, an inquest into someone's cause of death was a public affair, with a jury who could ask questions of the doctors as they performed their examination. While under inspection, the jury asked whether there was evidence of pregnancy, uncovering a potential motive for her cause of death. After dissecting her uterus, the doctors were able to confirm Elma was not with child. Post-inquest, Elma was dressed and placed into a coffin in preparation for burial. Resting in the parlor at the boarding house, Elias Ring decided the entire city of New York should have a chance at viewing her body. Carrying her coffin down their short steps, Elias laid the plain box on the sidewalk and opened the cover, exposing Elma's lifeless body for any bystander who happened along his home. It's estimated that hundreds and potentially thousands of New Yorkers viewed the body before her coffin was reclosed and she finally laid to rest. Sitting in a cell in Manhattan's cold stone correctional facility known as Bridewell, Levi could only hope that the tides would turn in his favor and he could somehow find his way out of the mounting trouble he found himself. Luckily for him, his well-connected brother, Ezra Weeks, was already busy procuring the best possible attorneys for Levi's defense. Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and Henry Brockholst Livingston, the three most prominent and well-known legal minds of New York, were called upon by Ezra to prepare for what was shaping up to be the trial of the newly welcomed century. Hamilton achieved infamy thanks to both his service in the Revolution and as the Secretary of the Treasury for the first presidential administration, where he spearheaded legislation establishing the first national bank. And though proud of his service in the administration, the job didn't pay too well, and so Hamilton was forced to maintain a legal practice in order to make ends meet. Known for commercial law, Hamilton only defended one murder case in his decades-long career. Aaron Burr, known mostly as the political enemy who later killed Hamilton in a duel, was a highly skilled attorney and served as New York's Attorney General in 1789. As such, he was one of the smartest additions to the defense team, as he knew intimately how the prosecutor would prepare for the case. The final attorney secured for the defense, Henry Livingston, was the most well-versed in the aspects of criminal law and had more experience than his co-counsel, including going against the prosecutor set to try the case, Cadwallader David Colden. Held at City Hall on the corner of Wall and Nassau Streets, the trial was a test in endurance by all who participated. Beginning March 31, 1800, the trial was presided over by John Lansing with assistance from Mayor of and Recorder Richard Harrison. The first day of trial started at 10 a.m., where jurors were selected and prepared to stand in judgment of the accused. This trial was a buffet of conflicts of interest that I do not think would ever fly in a courtroom today. To highlight just some of the questionable things at play here, Aaron Burr owned the Manhattan Well Company, the property where Elma's body was discovered, and employed his client via Levi's brother Ezra. Hamilton, owed a debt to Ezra Weeks and had gotten the court clerk, William Coleman, his position. Even some of the members of the jury had intimate dealings. Of course, some of this is to be expected given the requirements to be allowed on a jury, but still, this just seems a bit too incestuous to be a fair trial. The prosecutor began his opening statement by playing up the difference in legal counsel, highlighting that the defense outmatched him in experience and education. He then laid his foundation of the case and why Levi should be found guilty of murder, though there was little evidence pointing his way, and he had not confessed to the crime. Prior to leaving for the night, Colton explained, Elma shared a secret with her cousin. She was preparing to get married to the man who had been courting her all summer, Levi. He then went on to share Levi and someone, believed to be Elma, were heard quietly exiting the boarding house the evening of her disappearance. Colden admitted to having only circumstantial evidence, but, he said, that should not matter in this instance. With that, he began calling the first of 75 witnesses. The trial was very much a marathon. With witness after witness, the prosecution tried to illustrate the supposed illicit affair between Levi and Elma and attempted to piece together her final whereabouts on the night of her disappearance. A string of individuals provided testimony until 1:30 in the morning breaking only to provide the jurors some relief the judge adjourned and called for court to resume at 10 a.m. unable to go home and in the crudest form of being sequestered the jurors were forced to spend the night in city hall sleeping on the ground of the drawing room located on the second floor resuming tuesday morning witnesses continued the defense proved effective countering Colden's witnesses and credibly raising doubts throughout much of the testimony. In one painful moment, the defense called the prosecution's misuse of improper precedents when trying to explain why the jury should allow hearsay testimony. Colden was right. He was most definitely outmatched. One of the loudest accusers of Levi, Richard Croucher, was also brought to the stand to testify against Weeks. Croucher seemed very familiar with court proceedings addressing the court and jury formally, and referring to Elma as the deceased. He testified that Levi and Elma were carrying a secret affair and had spent the evening together on two separate occasions. Quite the scandal for a young Quaker in training. Whatever damage Croucher's testimony did to Levi, the defense blunted when they forced Croucher to admit he had gotten into an argument with Levi, insinuating his testimony may have been tainted. As the defense rose, they reiterated the lack of evidence against their client and reminded the jury of the dangers of damning a man too quickly without cause. Recent headlines highlighted the story of a man wrongfully accused and convicted of rape. Burr made sure to remind the men present that they should not be quick to trust simply the words of others. Instead, the defense claimed, the supposed secret love affair between Levi and Elma was one of fantasy, and Levi was in the company of his brother the evening in question, without sufficient time to murder Sands. The other point the defense tried to make was the belief that Elma was not, in fact, murdered. Burr, Hamilton, and Livingston's theory was Elma either slipped and fell into the well and drowned, or committed suicide. Calling the doctors who led the inquest of Elma's death, the defense peppered them with questions on the appearance of the body at the time of examination. The doctors agreed there had been no apparent defensive wounds or ligature marks, typical signs of a struggle. Their final point was just why and how was Levi accused so quickly? In jail before the cause of death could be determined, the defense argued, someone was dedicated to ensuring Levi's destruction. But who and why? The defense called Joseph Watkins, the friend and neighbor of Elias Ring, who helped retrieve Elma's body to the stand. Hamilton asked Watkins a peculiar question. Had he witnessed any behavior that would cause him to suspect improper relations between Elma and Elias? The answer? Yes. Watkins confirmed he heard the rumblings of a sexual affair between Elias and Elma over the summer when Mrs. Ring was out of town. He shared this knowledge with only one other person, fellow boarding house resident Richard Croucher. Croucher, the man who had been vocal about Weeks' guilt from the start, who testified about the lurid affair between Levi and Elma, had known a scandalous secret that could open the suspect pool and remained silent. Nearing three o'clock in the morning, Colden asked the court to adjourn, as he had not slept since the start of the trial some 40-plus hours prior. But, the judge explained, he could not keep the jury, who were business owners losing money, away for another night. The defense agreed to forego summation, believing they had made their case and undercut the prosecutions sufficiently with their cross-examinations. And so, the case was handed to the jury, who returned a verdict within minutes. Levi Weeks was found not guilty. Immediately after the trial, summaries of the proceedings were sent to print and sold throughout the city to anyone clamoring for details. The public, who had been told by the press of Levi's murderous intent, was surprised and outraged by the not guilty verdict. But the printed trial summaries helped detail just how circumstantial the prosecution case really was and just how much the defense succeeded in tearing it apart. Levi eventually left the city and relocated to Mississippi to work as an architect. Cadwallader Colden went on to a fairly successful political career, serving in the state senate. Livingston was eventually appointed to the Supreme Court. And as for the bitter rivals Hamilton and Burr, well, I think we all know how that story ended. Before I sign off, I have to thank some of you great listeners for your contributions to the pod. Thank you, Tammy, and thank you, Cindy, with Wine, Dine, and Storytime Podcast for your donations through Buy Me a Coffee. I so appreciate the support. If you want to learn how to support the show, or check out episode notes, request a topic, or just say hey, you can find me at the website, www.civicsandcoffee.com. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, consider a rate and review on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I love hearing from you. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together.